Jesus Christ, now and forever. Well, good afternoon on this Palm Sunday, the first day of Holy Week. Um, I'm sitting here in my car near the North Umqua River, which is the the river that runs through my hometown here in Roseburg, Oregon. Uh, so if you can hear that sound in the background, I'm not sure if it'll come up on the microphone or not, but uh, there's kind of a low whispering sound of the water going by. Uh, and it's very peaceful. I'm sitting here in my car. I've got the window rolled down right now, listening to the sound of the water, the music of the <laughs> of the waves. I don't know, not waves exactly, but the uh, the water flowing over the rocks, making its way towards the ocean. And we just had a marvelous storm pass through here. I was in the kitchen at home cooking with my mom. We were making something for dinner, and uh, we had the kitchen window open to let out some of the smoke because we were roasting all these vegetables in the oven. It was kind of a smoky affair. And then uh, all of a sudden, I, I, I noticed it was getting very dark. And I looked out, I saw there were all these big gray storm clouds that had come in. So I figured we were in for some rain. But I was not expecting this deluge, not just of rain, but hail, huge pellets of hail. And there's thunder and flashes of lightning. It only lasted maybe about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes or so, and then it passed on, um, I guess, heading further north. Uh, but it was really quite a spectacle. Uh, maybe just because, you know, we don't really get a lot of storms around here. So <laughs> I remember recently I was talking to a friend of mine who's out in the Midwest, and uh, we were on video chat. It was, this is when I was still at St. Patrick's several weeks ago. We were on video chat. I was sitting out in one of our lovely courtyards there, and it was a sunny, beautiful day. Typical, you know, Bay Area, uh, like 60s or 70s, and there were birds singing and a picturesque blue sky. It was so nice. And I was outside, and he could see my surroundings. And he said there was this this kind of a portico in this courtyard with uh, uh, there were some like chairs and tables you could sit under it, and it was covered. You know, the top is covered. You could sit there and look out. And he noticed that. He said, wow, it looks like a perfect porch to sit and watch a storm. You know, if we, if I had a porch like that here, I'd be sitting out there every day watching the storms roll in. <laughs> and I had to break it to him. Well, where I live, uh, we, there's really no such thing as storms, or at least very rare. Pretty much we sit out here and watch the blue sky, you know. <laughs> but here in Oregon, you know, we get more rain, but we don't very often get a huge storm breaking like that. Just all of a sudden, it was very unusual and uh and in a way kind of welcome you know it's kind of a nice change uh kind of exciting of course since we were inside and surrounded by the smells of good food cooking and playing a nice game of scrabble and uh we had a i just brewed a pot of tea so we're having some tea with honey and lemon and uh <laughs> yeah, it was a very nice kind of domestic scene with this storm breaking outside and sitting inside in peace, watching it go by. Maybe that's kind of a good metaphor for, you know, where we all, not all, but many of us are right now with this ongoing pandemic. I was reading an article recently where the author was commenting on kind of just this surreal, I want to say surreal, surreality. I don't know if that's a word. Maybe surrealism, but that implies an artistic movement. (laughs) But... But you know what I mean, the surreal kind of nature of this time, because, you know, we're at home and obviously it's caused 
is such great disruption to all of our normal routines and our plans and everything. And we're all at home and wondering when it's all going to pass. But from external sources, we hear about the devastation being wreaked by this pandemic. And uh, while we're safe within the walls of our homes and surrounded by our loved ones, it sort of seems like something that, I don't know, it's it's far removed from us. Um, and of course, that's not really the reality. This disease is here. The pandemic is here. It's happening now. Many, many people are affected far worse than just having to stay home for a few weeks. People are, are, people are dying. People are in the hospital. Um, and f- many, many people, far more than those even who are affected, in my state, we just surpassed 1,000 patients today who were confirmed cases of the virus, many, many more people are afflicted with what a priest friend of mine is calling the pandemic of fear, which in a way is claiming, you know, uh, innumerably more victims even than the pandemic of the coronavirus is. People are anxious, people are afraid, people are isolated. And so this uh, this is something that's sweeping around the world, but, you know, at times when we're just at home, it sort of seems like something that that is, I don't know, happening in a fantasy or something like that. That's the strange thing about this pandemic. This author I was reading was commenting, you know, and uh, I think the example he used was the Italians who were in Naples during the plague and, you know, 14th centuries or so, and and they could look out of their windows and they would see and and have to smell bodies rotting in the canals. I apologize for the image, but that's what he used, you know, and so it's the the pandemic that they were going through was so visible to them and so tactile, you can't get away from it. Thank God that's not the case for us, right? But it does contribute to this kind of, I don't know, surreality, If again, if that's a word, <laughs> this feeling of um, kind of a divorce, maybe this is it, between what we know to be the case with our intellect, what we know is going on and what seems to be the case in our day-to-day reality. Because even though so many things are disrupted, we're living at home, you know, in our homes, and do- doing our kind of our normal things as best we can, adapted to the circumstances. So it's just something that I've been thinking about and observing a little bit. Maybe today's little storm is a, uh, an illustration of that ongoing uh, disconnect between the reality and our experience day-to-day. Uh, but you know, today with Palm Sunday, we're entering into Holy Week, the holiest week of the Christian year. And as my Archbishop said in his homily this morning, which I watched live streaming his mass from the cathedral in Portland, he said, uh, on the one hand, this is going to be a Holy Week like never before. And we've all known it. I've known it for weeks, you know, pretty much I assumed that I wasn't going to be able to participate in any of the liturgies of Holy Week. Um, I, I told you a couple weeks ago when I was driving up from California I stopped and stayed over one night with a friend of mine, a priest friend in Northern California and this was on March 18th and so the morning of the 19th we got up and we celebrated a beautiful mass together for the Feast of St. Joseph it was a low mass since it was just the two of us we didn't have a choir or anything or a deacon or anything but we celebrated a beautiful and solemn low mass the best way we could and, uh, and it was very reverent and wonderful. And at the end of it, we sang some hymns. We sang this hymn to St. Joseph called Te Yosef Celebrant, uh, Let Us Celebrate You, St. Joseph. And it 
kind of it's a hymn of all the merits of St. Joseph. And then we also sang the church's great hymn of thanksgiving, Te Deum Laudamus. Um, we give you praise, O Lord. We give you thanks. Um, a beautiful and very ancient hymn. It's the hymn that uh, Columbus and all of, all of the chaplains on his ships sang when they came into sight of the new world. You know, So that gives you an idea. It's, it's dated to the time of St. Ambrose, actually. Uh, a very, very ancient hymn of praise and thanksgiving. So we sang that together. And I've just been reflecting more and more on that, you know, as time goes on and I spend these days at home feeling, really feeling very uh, disconnected in a way from the church. I mean, in all this time, I, I haven't been able to even go into a church in the weeks that I've been home. Um, yesterday was the first time. Yesterday, for the first time since I arrived here in Roseburg, I left the city in order to go a little less than an hour north to the little town of Cottage Grove, where I know a priest. He's the pastor there. In fact, most of these masses online, like I think I told you, uh, most of the masses I've been going to online, I've been live streaming from his parish, Our Lady of Perpetual Help in Cottage Grove. And his name is Father John Boyle. Uh, he's a wonderful priest who I've known for several years. And uh, so I saw on his Facebook page, I went to his online mass, went, quote unquote, you know, on Saturday morning. And I saw on the page that he was having confession times for his parish that evening. And I decided to go. You know, it's, it's been a few weeks. I went to confession the very day I left St. Patrick's. I kind of, I waited to the very last minute because I didn't know when I'd be able to go again. And so, I, but I went that day to my spiritual director. And so I thought, you know, it's been uh, going on three weeks. Um, usually in the seminary, I try to go every week or at least every two weeks. Um, and so I was kind of starting to feel it, you know, it's... Um, when, when you form a habit of going to regular confession, um, then even, many of you know this, even if you're not in a state of mortal sin, pray God, uh, you, you kind of start to feel worn down. It's like, <laughs> you, uh, you know, every day, um, as the psalmist says, the just man falls seven times daily, you know. And so the just man, the saint, falls seven times daily. And so you and I, it's, I mean, we... <laughs> think how often we must fall. And at the end of the night, uh, if you pray the Roman breviary, then you, at the office of Compline, the last prayer of the day, you do a short examination of conscience. And, you know, you just go back over the day and you, you just realize how often you have uh, maybe, you've not acted lovingly or generously or things that you failed to do that you ought to have done. So it builds up and you kind of start to get worn down and not, maybe not exactly demoralized, not quite the right word, but you start to feel it and you, and you need to go to the Lord and, sit and just kind of get a clean slate and seek His mercy. And so I decided to go anyway yesterday. I drove up there uh, in, the, in the afternoon. I had some other things to do earlier. I did our shopping for the week, you know. We're trying to go shopping once a week. So my mom and I will plan our meals for the week, make a list, uh, add to it throughout the week of whatever else we might run out of or <laughs> realize we need. And then I'll just go on the weekend once, maybe to a couple stores, but, you know, try to limit it and just knock it out. So I did that yesterday. Uh, then I went to Cottage Grove, and when I walked into the church there, you know, I think I it was only then that I realized the full brunt <laughs> of 
the pain, really, of not being able to go to the church for all these weeks, um, and of you know the real the real suffering entailed by being away from our Lord's Eucharistic presence and being away from the Mass and being away from the sacraments. Yes, I'm able to go to these live streaming masses online, and and that is a consolation, and you know, and, it, and it's something. And I've mentioned before the real graces that come through spiritual communion, and, and that's very true. I don't recant that. You know, it's our Lord really gives Himself to us, especially in these times of of great difficulty. He's giving Himself all the more, all the more to our souls. You know, we make our little efforts, and He and He meets us where we are. So that's all true, but I just realized when I went to that church just how much that I'm I'm missing it. Um, and I, as I was telling a friend about it yesterday, I was I kind of came up with this analogy. I said, you know, when we fast, if you fast for a day, or even if you maybe fast for two or three days, like you're you're really serious, and you know, there was one year for Triduum actually Holy Thursday through Easter Vigil when I got to go on a retreat and I fasted on bread and water for those days. So Holy Thursday to Good Friday, Good Friday, Easter Sunday, that's basically two days, 48 hours or so. And uh, so, I mean, you know, you can do that. It's not it's not anything super onerous. Um, and I experienced it as a great grace. Because if you if you do a fast for a little while, then what you start to experience is, you know, your body is, is hungry, but the mind is in control and uh, after a little while the hunger kind of fades and you don't notice it so much and you you take a little bread here and there and it kind of takes the edge off and it, and it kind of clarifies the mind in a certain way and you, you feel sharper and um, it's in a, so it's kind of a welcome thing you know in, in some ways if you approach it with the right disposition and you you know and it's for and it's for a controlled period of time and you know, okay, in 17 hours, <laughs> I'm going to have a nice meal, okay? But it's different if you're starving. You know, it's one thing to fast for a day or two. It's different if you're going two, three weeks and you're not eating or, or you're not eating enough. You're malnourished and you don't know when it's going to end and you're thinking, my gosh, this could go on for weeks, could go on for months. I don't know when my next meal is going to be. Of course, we t- take this in a spiritual way, okay? Uh, I'm well provided for, obviously, materially, and thank God, you know, we're, we're getting by just fine. But, uh, s- but s- on the spiritual level, and that's a real hunger, and that's a real need, you know, um, so, I, yeah, I just sort of realized it. It kind of hit me yesterday uh, that I, I, I do have this hunger. And it took me back to the words, again, of my archbishop in a pastoral letter he sent to the archdiocese when I think the first weekend that all of our public masses were canceled, he sent this letter. At the very end of it, he said, May this time increase our hunger to receive Christ in the Eucharist. And... I've thought about those words many times since then, and I've often enough repeated them to myself and to others as we try to interpret the spiritual meaning of this crisis and draw good fruit from it. You know, this, this spiritual hunger, it is, in a way, a gift which the Lord is giving from this crisis. But we can't uh, erase or, I guess, lightly pass over 
the fact that it is hunger, you know. Hunger, I mean, what's, what's the gift of hunger? The gift of hunger is realizing our need. It's realizing our poverty. It's realizing um, our dependence on God and that we really need Him. Like, we need Him more than bread. <laughs> we need Him for everything. So that's the gift. But that doesn't erase the fact that there's real suffering with hunger. Hunger demands fulfillment. Hunger cries out for satisfaction. And the longer that satisfaction is postponed, the greater the suffering becomes. And so, that's in a word, that's what I was realizing yesterday as I, I went to this lovely church where Father John is doing such good work. It's a church that's been, you know, poorly shepherded, if I may say so, for a long time. And it's not in great shape. And, you know, it's a small community and whatever. And he's doing wonderful things there. He really is. And that parish is so blessed. And so I did go and, and I encountered the Lord and I got to spend some time in His presence and I made my confession, which was a good confession. And I received absolution. I received some good advice and encouragement. And, and at the end, I, I asked Father if there's any way I might receive the Blessed Sacrament. I just asked Him. I had to ask. And He said, as I expected, no, you know, not really. Um, to receive communion outside of Mass of course, is very exceptional and would really only be in an emergency, like in danger of death maybe, that, that, that this would happen um, or something like that anyway. And so he said, no, um, even at the masses I'm celebrating, you know, with just a server, I'm not giving communion to the server. It's, he, he's the only one, Father's the only one who receives it. So he said, no, just make your spiritual communions and uh, make them well. And your role during this time, your mission during this time as a layman, Right, because I'm still as a seminarian. Although I, I wear clerics and I do, you know, I had have liturgical functions specific to me and things like that, and some ministry and things like that. But under canon law, I'm still a layman until I, I become a deacon. So I'm a I'm a I'm a member of the laity, just like most of you who are listening. And so uh, he said, your role right now as a layman is to suffer in solidarity with the vast majority of the church, with pretty much all the laity who cannot receive Holy Communion right now, just like you. And so to suffer well in solidarity with them. And that helped me to kind of reframe what's going on because, you know, it's... it's um, This suffering that we're all experiencing, it's not meaningless, it's not senseless, it's not just something to be endured as long as we have to, but it it is an opportunity for generous love this is kind of what it means to suffer well, I think. Suffering in solidarity is suffering well. To, to make an offering of each of our sufferings for, for one another in the body of Christ. We're, we're united. Even though we can't receive that body and be, be received thereby into the bonds of Eucharistic communion, we are still united in Christ's body as, his, as the members of that body um, in a mystical, spiritual way. And so... I'm kind of trying to take that to heart and to reframe my experience of these coming days. Again, who knows how long it will last. Um, I've, you know, I heard a priest recently, not someone in authority, but he was just suggesting this might continue till Pentecost. I've heard from secular media it might go to August. You know, who knows? But maybe things will get, even if the pandemic is continuing, maybe at least these health measures might be loosened a bit and we can go back to public masses. I mean, but who knows? We don't know how long this will go on. 
but to suffer in solidarity with one another and to offer our sufferings really intentionally, offer them for each other. And you can do that just by a simple interior act. Um, because what decides whether we suffer well or suffer badly? Our interior disposition, right? If I'm suffering with an attitude of resignation and kind of um, begrudgingly and can't wait for it to be over and I'm just, then, then I'm, I'm, I'm acting selfishly. I'm just turned in on myself. I'm kind of becoming bitter. And uh, that's what the devil wants out of this, you know. There's no, there's no crisis the devil will, will put to waste, you know. <laughs> he wants to make use of this time to make us is- isolated and turned in on ourselves. Homo incurvatus in se, like St. Augustine says. Man turned in on himself. We're only filled with self-regard. But if when you experience the suffering, the hunger, the desire, uh, the, the real pain of this time, if you let yourself experience it and just interiorly acknowledge, I'm sharing right now in the sufferings of the whole body of Christ, people all over the world, and think about them. Think about people you know. Think we're suffering together. And I'm suffering it for his sake, for her sake. And together we're all walking with Christ to Calvary and we're all carrying the cross. That's why Archbishop said in his homily today, yes, it'll be a holy week like no other, but it could just be the best holy week we've ever had because we have an opportunity here to unite ourselves to Christ's sufferings, maybe in a way that we've never had before, you know? Yes, every year we celebrate these solemn liturgies and we meditate on and what's going on in the Lord's life, and we enter deeply into prayer, and etc., etc. But, but when was the last time that, in our own lives, in our day-to-day experience, we have endured this kind of ongoing trial during these days? I don't know. I never have. Um, I've definitely lived through Holy Weeks in in times of turmoil, and you know things in my family, and and things like that. But this is this is to a new degree. This is something new. And so it is an opportunity to suffer well, to suffer generously, to suffer lovingly, to suffer in solidarity. So I'm taking those words to heart. That's my mission. And it's your mission too, if you choose to accept it. Presuming you're not a priest, right? If there's any priest listening, I hope you're, and I know that you are celebrating masses um, for the good of the church. And you're going through your own suffering right now and, and heartache having to be separated from your people. So the whole church is going through this dark night of the soul together. And um, yeah, at least we know we're all in it together with our blessed and, and wounded Lord on his road to Calvary. So that's pretty much enough about that, I think. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we've all heard enough about the coronavirus to last us a lifetime, even before you tuned into this podcast today. So I don't need to add any more to it. Other than that, things are pretty much going on as normal, kind of, um, schoolwork and stuff. We have Holy Week off from classes, which is good. I was afraid we might have classes during this week, you know, because basically with all the chaos of trying to get home and, and transition to online learning, we lost about a week of classes. So we're behind in all my classes. And I, I was afraid they might schedule classes during the week, but they didn't, thank God. They're respecting the break. I do have one makeup class session, which is recorded. I have to watch, but I can do it at my convenience. But the other thing is, I have a ton of papers to do, though. And uh, and I'm finding everything kind of takes 
1.5 or two times as long to do at home. Um, and I don't mean to start complaining or get off on a rant, but just mentioning that, I mean, it, it, it is. Things, things are harder at home. The resources are harder to access. Like, obviously, I don't have a theological library in my basement, so I've got to try to find what I can on Google Scholar or JSTOR, and it's kind of hard to find things. And Or you'll find, like, these old scans, you know, blurry, poorly digitized books where you have to zoom way in and try to decipher what this ancient text is saying or things like that. There are a lot of good resources available online, though, I have to say. I've been able to find a lot of what I need, like... You can find a lot of the church fathers online translated into English. You can find good Bible commentaries and things like that. Uh, Logos Bible software is making a lot of stuff available for students who are working at home, so that's good. Um, you can find a lot of good articles. Our, our library has made their databases accessible to us from home, so we can log on there. So, so I'm able to do a lot of research. Not quite as good as I, I'm not quite as well as I could if I were at St. Patrick's, but. I can do a lot, but things just take longer. I don't know why. <laughs> so uh, I have to do a lot for that. and I, I have a number of papers to do, and I'm hoping I can knock out like two or three of them maybe this week. So I just kind of get it over with and get a bit of that, that pressure off um, as we go on into the final weeks of the semester after Holy Week. I'm doing a lot of proofreading too. I do proofreading for my fellow students. So how it works, usually together we would meet up and I would go over the paper together. But now they send me their papers and I make my corrections. Um, you know, I print it out, I do it by hand with a pen. Then I scan the paper back in using my phone. I use an app called Adobe Scan, which works super well, by the way. If you ever need a scan and you don't have a, have a scanner, just get this app on your phone and it, it works great. So I scan the papers in that way, make a PDF, then we, I have a video call with that student on Google Meet and I share my screen so they can see the PDF and together we go through the whole thing, hold the whole enchilada and I talk them through all my suggestions and answer the questions, whatever. And then I, I email them the PDF at the end. And so that's the way we've decided as a school to do this. And so you can see, I mean, that kind of, it just because of, the contingencies of the situation, it takes at least twice as long where normally we could just sit down and do it together. But now I have to basically go through the paper twice. So these kind of things, um, they just add to the, to the difficulties of working from home. Uh, but you know, I'll, I'll conclude with this. So as not to end on kind of a down, down note, a negative note. Um, there's a priest podcaster I listen to from the Netherlands called Father Roderick. Many of you, I think, know him, uh, at least listen to his podcasts like I do. And he was talking the other day about some advice he received on working from home. And the advice is real simple. It just says, um, don't expect as much from yourself <laughs> in a normal day at home. Uh, uh, wait, how does it? that's not right. Don't expect as much from yourself at home as you would in a normal day at the office. In other words, you have to you have to give yourself allowances for working in the new situation, right? Unless you're already used to working at home, which some people are, but most of us are not. And so it's just the fact the circumstances are different than if you're in the office or like for me than if I was at seminary. The circumstances are different. There's more distractions. It's not a, it's not a very conducive environment for deep focus or study. 
it's just harder to get things done. Plus, there's a lot... Plus, okay, on top of that, some things just take longer, like my proofreading, just because of adapting to new, new technologies or new circumstances just by the fact of it. Plus, on top of that, most of us have more responsibilities at home that we wouldn't have if we were at the office, and they're kind of overlapping. So, like, at home now, I'm doing a lot of cooking, a lot of cleaning, I'm doing the weekly shopping, um, things like that that I just don't have to worry about when I'm in school. And so that all just takes time. And uh, my normal routine of prayer, I'm, I'm not relaxing that, you know. And so, I mean, you only have so many hours in a day, right? And sooner or later, uh, you're going to have to just give yourself some wiggle room. Give yourself some allowances to, to do less. Just do less. <laughs> that was Father Roderick's advice. Do less. So I'm thinking about how I can apply that. I do feel called to kind of, especially this week during Holy Week when there's no classes, yes, I'll spend a few hours in the mornings um, doing my papers so I can get those done and keep my prayer routine, you know, as it is, um, to be to be very devoted to that. But I do feel called to kind of step back in some way if I can and, and kind of um, not live in such a busy way you know, because when I was coming home, I was anticipating this time being more of a time just to be with Christ in God, to be hidden with Christ in God. To be sure, I've had time for that. I've had, I've been making a lot of time for mental prayer and contemplation. But I've at times still been feeling overwhelmed by the busyness of just having so many demands. So I'm thinking about how to do that. I think probably this coming week, there will be no weekly podcast on Good Friday. I'll just leave that as a day for quiet reflection. And I'll come back to you the following week, Easter week. Um, but I intend to keep up the daily podcasts, though, at least with my reflections. So other than that, um, let's, just, let's just keep going forward with Jesus and in solidarity with one another, continuing on this royal road of the cross as long as it, <laughs> well, as far as it may lead, as, as long as we may have to walk it. Let us walk it with Jesus and let us have a determined determination, like St. Teresa says, to walk all the way to the end and, and not to yield and not to give up whatever may happen, but to see this through to the end with each other and with our Lord. All right, so that's enough about that. It's starting to rain a little bit outside again, just very lightly. But let's move on and talk just a, for a few minutes about Shakespeare. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. So last week I read Shakespeare's King John. I uh, finished it. I'm still behind on the Shakespeare project. I have to go back and read Two Gentlemen Still and read the last act of Julius Caesar. And now we're on into Richard II, and I'm already kind of behind. I've got to get caught up on that. Um, I, I'm getting a little bit, I don't want to quite say burnt out, but I'm getting a little bit, um, I don't know, I, I'm finding it a little bit hard to get the motivation to keep up with these Shakespearean plays. Maybe just on top of everything else I'm doing, it's kind of hard. I'm still enjoying them. I enjoyed King John a lot. I, I will say it was maybe for me it was more of a forgettable play than some of the ones we've read, and I think part of the reason is I didn't I didn't uh, do the research into the historical context like I did for Henry 
<coughs> excuse me, <laughs> Henry the Sixth, for example. I did a lot of research into that and kind of dived deep into the the historical context. And that remains one of my favorite plays we've read. I loved that that trilogy of Henry the Sixth. King John, though, it was kind of fun. Um, basically, the, the situation is you've got King John, who's reigning over England, and then you've got Arthur, this young boy who's apparently a claimant to the throne. He might he might have the right of succession, and King Philip of France is backing Arthur. And so it becomes this classic rivalry between England and France that never dies, you know. And uh, you get King Philip there fighting against King John and their armies are going going at it. King Philip, supposedly, because he supports Arthur. Of course, if he got Arthur on the throne, that would be like France is kind of ruling England through a puppet king, maybe, for a while. So France has a real interest in it. King John's defending his right to rule the th- to, rule to the throne, <laughs> which he currently holds. And uh, it's just kind of, it's almost comical in a way. They just keep going to war at the drop of a hat, you know, the slightest opportunity. And nothing comes of it. And they they come to a kind of a peace. And then the slightest little thing happens and they break the peace and they go to war again. <laughs> it's like they just can't get enough of fighting each other. And uh, so this play... I mean, it was kind of a, it was, it was entertaining. Um, two things kind of stood out. One was King John blatantly defies the Pope. Uh, the Pope sends his legate, kind of a, a nuncio, to try to broker a peace between the two nations. And the nuncio is very proud. And he comes in and he's uh, very friendly with France because they're a, a Catholic nation and they're deferential to the Pope. But he is less so towards England because King John stands up to him and he's saying, you know, we, I'm not going to bow to any Pope of Rome. And, you know, it's, it, it's interesting this happens because King John historically, this is one thing that at least I know, King John was still Catholic. I mean, England was still Catholic at the time, right? But I wonder if Shakespeare is painting King John as more of a sympathetic figure for Protestant times because he sounds like a Protestant king of England. It, he really does, and so um, this is the this is the least little bit of historical research I did. I went back and looked at the years that King John reigned just to verify. No, yeah, he, he really did live and reign before the Reformation, but he sounds like a Protestant king in the way he speaks to the Pope's representative. Um, so that was one thing that stood out to me. I thought it was interesting, but at the end of the play, spoiler alert. Uh, King John makes his peace with Rome because he finds himself in a hard spot. His nobles have deserted him for a reason I'll talk about in a second. And they've all gone over to join France's side. And the French armies are marching through England and King John basically, he has, no, he has nothing left to do. He has no other resort but to make peace with Rome and to accept Rome's terms, which is to basically lay down his arms and, and make peace now with France. So he does. So I thought that was interesting. It shows kind of historically the power of the Holy See uh, in diplomatic terms. The Holy See is never, even when there were the papal states and they had their own armies, I mean, the Holy See has never really been a military power. But in the Middle Ages, it was a great diplomatic power and it could broker peace between kings, uh, you know, by exerting the force of the Pope's will 
over all of Europe. So I thought that was just interesting to see. King John, even though he was defiant of the Pope, in the end, when uh, he was you know, kind of caught at the end of, of France's swords, he had to make his peace with France and with Rome. Interesting message for Shakespeare to be sending during his Protestant days, uh, the time of Queen Elizabeth I. I'm not quite sure what... And maybe the Protestants of that day would have just kind of <laughs> used that as an opportunity to shake their fists at the Pope and say, you know, thank God we're free of him now. Uh, we don't have to, we, we, we won't be forced to bow down to any foreign power. Maybe that's it. But interesting thing there. The other thing that really struck me was how King John orders the murder of Arthur, the little boy who's the claimant to the throne. And, uh, you know, eventually they capture Arthur and he, he, in an oblique way, without actually saying the words, he makes it known that his will is that Arthur should die. And so there's this very moving scene where Arthur is, uh, he's in the company of the man who would be his executioner. And they have a history together. You know, and this man was Arthur's guardian, I think, or custodian during the, his, his early childhood. And so... Arthur is, is begging him for sympathy, and the man has been ordered to put out Arthur's eyes with burning brands. And so they have this heartbreaking exchange. Finally, Arthur wins his sympathies, and the man lets him go. But he says, you have to keep yourself hidden, or the king will know that I've, that I've let you live, and my fate will be worse than yours. And so the man leaves him, and Arthur goes to escape the kingdom, and he jumps down from a high wall, and misjudges the distance and he dies. He, he kills himself, not meaning to, but he brings his own life to an end. And then the nobles find him there lying in the street, his broken body, and they take it as proof that the king had him killed, which of course the king wanted to, but wasn't actually the king's fault. You know, that Arthur leapt to his own death. But they understand from this that King John had Arthur killed, and then they all go over and join France to take up arms against their own nation. I thought that was a very poignant scene. Um, you know, the, the king wants to have Arthur killed. Arthur manages to convince his executioner not to kill him. So he, he, the executioner has a change of heart. Then the executioner goes back to King John. When King John learns that his nobles are going to leave him over this, then he has a change of heart, which is sort of cynical. But he, then he turns on his executioner and says, you know, well, you misinterpreted me. How could you have thought that I wanted you to kill him? Blah, 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 blah. And then in the midst of all this kind of confusion and, and, and kind of, uh, change, you know, the changeable hearts of kings and rulers, it, Arthur nonetheless dies. He's trying to escape the kingdom and he dies anyway. So I don't know what kind of a message we might take from that. Um, it's it's a it's a bitter moment when when Arthur leaps down, and you you want to tell him no, don't do that. But he's just a kid. He doesn't he doesn't understand. He, you know he misjudges the distance. He thinks maybe he might break a bone. You know, but he goes for it anyway, and and he dies. And then at the end of the play, the play ends in this very kind of sudden way. Um, King John, you know, he's had to basically surrender and broker his peace with France and with Rome, the, pa the Pope's representative, the papal legate. And 
he and his forces have, have retreated before the marching f- French, and they're at this abbey, a monastic abbey, and, and then at the very last scene, we see King John is dying, and they just say, well, one of the monks poisoned him. It's like, what? And then he dies very soon after. He hears some bad news about the on, you know, onslaught of the French, and then he dies. And uh, his nobles, at the very end, they were just reconciled to him. And then we see, the last thing we hear is they, they're all going to stand together against the French. It's like, what's the point of this? It's just battles after battles after battles. The English warring against the French. People are dying. You know, Arthur died. Like, why did he have to die? There's no reason. And then King John has died. And he, he hasn't really endeared himself to us uh, with his decision so far as ruler so maybe we're not too sorry to see him go but still it seems kind of like it's just it's just senseless he was just murdered by a monk we don't even meet the monk we don't know why the monk did this you know we just hear he was poisoned and then he dies and so i don't know i I haven't really spent as much time as i sometimes do before these podcasts reflecting on the play so i can give you a more reasoned reflective uh you know interpretation of what's going on or kind of give it a, a Christian reading. But my overall takeaway is just, yeah, it was kind of good entertainment. It was kind of a popcorn play, <laughs> if you want to use those terms. But the overall sense that I got from it was just the senselessness of evil and and the evil of these ongoing wars. I mean, this is the hundred years war, right, between France and England. Why did it have to last a hundred years? I don't know. The stubbornness of nations, the stubbornness of rulers grasping for power it just kind of leaves you feeling hollow and and feeling a bit sad it reminds me of titus andronicus in a way at the end of that play you know the escalation of revenge which leaves almost all of rome in ruins these two great houses you know decimated many many people killed or worse uh like titus's poor daughter whose name i can't remember now but uh at the end of that play i mean you know in the final act everyone dies pretty much and so the ever-escalating cycle of revenge is brought to an end because there's no one left, really, to take revenge on anyone else. They've all killed each other. And so that's the resolution, and you're just like, that's it? I mean, what was this all for? What was it all about? It just ends in bloodshed and 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 meaningless suffering, and now it's just concluded. But there's no real satisfaction. There's no real catharsis. The same with King John, at least for me. Um, we see these nobles standing shoulder to shoulder, willing to defend England against the French now, and it's like, come on, just give it a rest. I don't know. Maybe you maybe you have better insights into this play than I did. If so, please send them to me. You can send a voice message. I'll include it on my next podcast. Or you can just write to me and tell me what you thought. Uh, now, let us talk for just a few moments about a wonderful feast day which we just passed by, the Feast of Our Lady's Seven Sorrows. Did you know that we are called to be saints? What is a saint? Well, a saint means one who is holy. Feast of the uh, Seven Sorrows of Mary, or Our Lady of Sorrows. It's kind of odd to call it a feast, um... I don't know, maybe we should really call it a a memorial or something like that. But 
in the extraordinary form calendar, the old calendar, it falls on the Friday of, of the first week of Passion Tide, which was this Friday, two days ago. And um, I <laughs> began recording, well, actually I didn't. I intended to record this podcast on Friday, as I usually do. And then I began recording it actually last night, late, uh, Saturday night. But the recording that I made, ultimately I wasn't able to use any of it uh, for various reasons. So I'm recording that, I re-recorded that part today and I'm finishing the rest up today, Sunday. So I meant to talk about this on Friday and now you're getting it a couple days late. Sorry about that. But nevertheless, I still want to share about this memorial of this, the Sorrows of Mary, Our Lady of Sorrows. It's kept on the Friday of Passion Tide, one week before Good Friday. Because Our Lady's sufferings are so closely linked to the sufferings of Jesus. Um, of course, you, can't, you can never have any liturgical memorials or feasts during Holy Week. So this is kind of the last possible day before Holy Week that you could have this memorial. I guess you could technically have it on Saturday. But it's held on Friday because Friday is really always a day for us of, of penance and of remembering the sufferings of the Lord. So the, the first Friday during Passion Tide, it's a, it's a powerful day in the Catholic imagination, in the Catholic liturgical calendar, you know. And that day is always devoted to the sorrows of Mary. Um, one of the saints, I think St. Ambrose, I don't have the quote before me right now, but I think he says that on Calvary, y- you, could, you could think of the Sacred Heart of Jesus pierced with a lance, and the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which is metaphorically pierced, pierced with a sword, the sword of, well, the sword of watching her son suffer. These two hearts are like two altars, side by side, on which simultaneously the sacrifice is offered. Christ offering the sacrifice of his own life, his own body, and Mary, united to him, offering herself in sacrifice in perfect union with her son. Or better, you could say, to even further emphasize their unity, that Mary was sacrificed on the cross with Jesus. We call her, in the Catholic theological tradition, we call her co-redemptrix. That means, in a way, co-redeemer with Jesus. And you have to understand it rightly, because some Protestants do get kind of hung up on this. They say, well, how can you say Mary is co-redeemer? Jesus alone is our redeemer, right? He's God. She's just a human being. Well, yes, but remember, she is the most perfect human being who ever lived, right? Uh, She was conceived immaculate. She never had a stain of sin. Her heart was perfectly united to the will of God. Uh, She was totally obedient to God's will, you know. And so she remained there at the foot of the cross on Mount Calvary. She didn't flee. She didn't hide her face. She didn't swoon. (laughs) She didn't faint away like some legends would like us to believe. She remained there at Jesus' side until the bitter end, until he gave up the ghost, until he gave up his spirit. And she's co-redemptrix in that sense because she drank the cup of suffering to the dregs. And she offered that suffering, again, she's perfectly obedient to the will of God, and so she offered her suffering, which was so intense, for the salvation of the world, in union with the intentions of God and the intentions of Jesus So she was perfectly united to their sacrifice. In that sense, she is co-redemptrix. Because also, she 
in, in offering her sufferings, you know, her offering was in a sense not diluted in any way by any stain of sin or any earthly attachment or any selfish motive. It was a perfect and a pure offering of, of all of her suffering for the salvation of the world in union with her son. So we commemorate her on, on that Friday, uh, two days ago now. And it's worth remembering that too as we journey through, through not Lent anymore, but through Holy Week. Always to think about where is Mary in this? You know, as we go through the readings of the coming days, think where is Mary? Uh, where is Mary? Because she never leaves her son's side. She's always there present throughout these days of, of great trial and sorrow. So what are the seven sorrows of Mary given to us in the tradition? This is also worth contemplating. Um, the seven sorrows of Mary, one tradition calls them the seven swords that would pierce her heart. The first one is that prophecy of Simeon in the temple when she goes to present the child Jesus there according to the law of Moses. Simeon, the old man, the prophet, comes up and takes Jesus into his arms and he prophesies. He tells Mary, a sword of sorrow will pierce your heart. And this child of yours will be a sign that will be contradicted. Well, that's, that's Mary's first sorrow. Um, she ponders these words in her heart for many years to come, wondering, what will it mean that my son is a sign who will be contradicted and that a sword will pierce my heart? Of course, we see those prophetic words fulfilled ultimately on Calvary. Christ, in his whole life, he's been contradicted constantly by the Jews, the priests, the scribes, the Sanhedrin, and the contradiction, you know, to speak against, contraditere, to speak against him. And ultimately, their contradiction of him leads him to, to Calvary. The second sorrow of Mary is the flight into Egypt when she and Joseph take Jesus and have, they have to flee their home country and go as refugees to seek to seek shelter in a foreign and hostile land in Egypt. Then the third sorrow, the loss of Jesus in the temple. When they went up to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover when he was 12 years old, they're returning back to Nazareth and they discover he's not with them. <laughs> and they go back and for three days they're searching the city in anxiety, probably on the verge of despair, wondering where is our son? What's happened to him? until they finally find him in the temple. The fourth sorrow, the meeting of Jesus and Mary on the way of the cross. This is that moment that's so powerfully shown in the Passion, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Cross, the movie, where Jesus meets Mary's eyes and she runs to him and he's already carrying the cross. He's bloodied, he's wounded, almost beyond recognition. But she sees him, their eyes meet, and he does it so beautifully. There's these flashbacks to when Jesus was a little boy and he would fall down and hurt himself and she'd run to him and pick him up. The same thing now, but he's a full-grown man and now he's bearing sufferings that Mary can't heal. She can't help him anymore with these. All she can do is run to him and meet his gaze and cry with him and accompany him to the end of his bitter journey. That leads to the fifth sorrow, uh, the crucifixion. And the sixth sorrow, the taking down of the body of Jesus from the cross. Mary, the mother, received his bloodied body into her own arms. 
and the seventh sorrow of Mary, the burial of Jesus. She arranged him for burial in the tomb with her own hands and anointed his body with spices and perfumes and wrapped him in bandages to be laid into the tomb. These seven sorrows of Mary, we, we, should, we should bear these in our hearts during these days because Mary experienced the sorrows of this week more uh, powerfully, more profoundly than anyone. <laughs> you could probably even say more than Jesus in, in, a, in a certain way because consider in her the sufferings of the mother in seeing the sufferings of the son. The sufferings of the son are beyond all imagining. I mean, he suffered everything for our sake. But the heart of a mother, really, when she sees her son in anguish, I think she suffers to an extent even greater than the material, the physical sufferings of the body of Jesus. So we should be united to her and we should make our own that beautiful prayer, the Stabat Mater, where we say, I have to paraphrase because I don't have it here, but something like, Mary, uh, let me share with you in your pain. If by joining myself to you, I can take away even uh, one, one you know, instant uh, of that infinite pain which you bore, then may I do it. I want to I stand with you at the foot of the cross. I want to weep with you. I want to hold you in my arms like St. John had the privilege of doing. Wipe away your tears or at least mingle mine with them. And gaze with you upon Jesus, the crucified one, the pierced one, who was raised up for our sake. And let's remember, too, that these seven sorrows, corresponding with them, there are seven joys, <laughs> the seven joys of Mary, which should give us consolation. She had this bitter prophecy uh, in the temple from Simeon, but then she had the joy of receiving Jesus into her arms and bringing him home and living with him for 30 years. They had the flight into Egypt, but they also had the joy, and this is a mysterious joy, of knowing that as they went into Egypt, they saw the idols of the Egyptians fall down as they rode past on the road, as if the idols of this foreign land were worshipping their son, the God-child. Then Jesus was lost in the temple, but after three days he was found. And they, they, they met together on the way of the cross. She could not come to his help, but they did have the consolation at least of meeting one another's gaze and of having their, their hearts meet, their souls meet as their eyes met on the way of the cross. There was the sorrow of the crucifixion, of taking his body down and burying him in the tomb. But this sorrow is repaid after three days, again, three days, by the great joy of the resurrection. So let us take comfort in that too and, and ask Mary to comfort us. She's our lady of sorrows, but she's also our lady of the resurrection, our lady of perpetual help, as is the name of Father John's parish in Cottage Grove, our lady of perpetual help, our lady of perpetual hope, we might say. She knows very well, although we go through times of intense, bitter sorrow and pain, that in the Lord's good time, that pain is repaid a hundredfold with, with, with joys beyond all telling. Which joys which at this moment we can't anticipate. We can't predict what they will be. They it may seem impossible. 
But the Lord will repay us to the full for our suffering now with immense joys to come. So friends, that's about all I have to say today. I know it's a kind of a short podcast, shorter than usual. Again, I will not be recording the weekly show next week on Good Friday. Um, So as we travel together through Holy Week and through these holy days of the Triduum, just know of my prayers for you. That Know that I'm united with you and suffering with you in solidarity in this, this unwanted and unlooked for Lenten fast, this penance, the suffering of these days. But let us again just suffer well in union with each other and in union with our Lord. You'll get my daily reflections um, if you're subscribed to those over the coming days. And I'll talk to you again uh, in two weeks' time uh, during the Easter octave, Friday of the Easter octave. Hopefully the world will be a little bit brighter by then and we'll be able to rejoice together um, in union with the risen and glorified Christ. So may God bless you abundantly in these coming days. May he pour forth graces beyond all telling into your hearts. May he unite you so closely to his suffering that you may share abundantly in the glories of his resurrection to come. Now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Amen. Amen.